questions tonight? Yes. I have one that uh, I've been thinking about for a while. It's, uh, it's about uh, certain Prabhupada Lila uh, that maybe he gave a specific instruction at that time and then uh, Niskan we followed that for a long time and then I read something in Srila Srimarks that challenged that. And so I was just hoping that maybe you could clarify uh, the situation. The example was the, the pastime of Srila Prabhupada when he was in India and he was on top of a building one morning and then two devotees approached him, two disciples, and said that even though they were practicing Krishna consciousness, they didn't necessarily feel anything. They didn't feel the bliss of Krishna consciousness. So they asked Srila Prabhupada what to do. Srila Prabhupada said, go on, keep, keep doing it and eventually you'll feel it. So then came the philosophy, fake it until you make it. So I took this philosophy in my own personal life, and many devotees have, it's still a common idea. But then I read in Shudamarsha's books that he says that uh, the imitators will be marked for those people who are just imitating, they're not sincerely practicing. And so if you're, in other words, faking until you're making, Shudamarsha says that's not the right way to do it because then you become an imitator mm -hmm. instead of actually doing. Mm -hmm. And then also I read that Shudamarsha says that Krishna lies to us in order to bring in bring us to him, because we cannot handle the absolute truth. So sometimes Krishna lies to us. And so, in that sense, I also thought about Srila Prabhupada, maybe in order to preach, in order to encourage devotees in their path, and at that specific time, it's possible that Srila Prabhupada was giving a noble lie in order to encourage us. Mm -hmm. So, I've been I thinking about this for a while. Here, I understand the question. First of all, um, there are two different ideas there in play, and while you've connected the two, the imitation and the, the imitation issue and the issue of practice with minimal or uh, limited experience, you've connected the two together in a way that they weren't intended to go together. Um, and so let me talk about them as two, the two separate issues. First of all, the, um, when Pujapachudamarj used the term imitationists, um, what he's really speaking about is, in a broader context, the persons who practice but, and, and as I'm going to explain it, imitation may not sound like the best word, but this is what he's talking about. Um, and then, then I'll speak about it in such a way that the word applies more readily. But in the broader sense, he's saying imitationists and speaking about those who attach themselves to the form, if you will, of the tradition without really identifying with the substance of the tradition. And so, for example, to give a practical example, in the Chaitanya Sampradaya, after hundreds of years since the, the, the manifest leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu uh, came to an end, then you have the various lineages of Chaitanya Vaishnavism coming from Nityananda, Madhvaita, and, and um, Gadadhar, and Rupa Goswami, and so on and so forth. And during the time of Bhakti Vinod, which is kind of the beginning of the modern, it is the beginning of the modern era, or the, the interfacing of traditional Gaudiya Vaishnavism with modernity, with the modern world, which is what India was doing at the turn of the of the uh, what would be the twentieth century. Uh, Britain occupied India, and so Western ideas were in competition with ancient India ideas, 
and India was subjugated by the British, and so they were led to believe that their ideas were backward, and the modern civilized ideas was the way forward and so forth. Hmm. Which reminds me of something I heard just the other day, and um, it's an interesting fact. I've spoken about it myself in different ways, but someone made the point that the um, Iran um, was the territory that is now Iran, I guess it was Persia, was previously 100% Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian is an old religion. I don't know that much about it. It's probably not very very uh, much in play today, but all of Persia was Zoroastrian, and Muslims went there, and within a very short period of time, I forget what the period of time was, but a very short period of time, the entire population was converted to, um, to Islam. And then the example extends to Europe, which was full of various forms of what would you call paganism, and nature worship, and, and so on and so forth, um, much, of, much like uh, Native American, very kind of earthly grounded spirituality, worship of nature spirits, and, and so on and so forth. And um, medicine was medicine men and shamans, and so on and so forth. Well, this was all replaced in a relatively short period of time um, by Christianity, who marketed one miracle to close down all other miracle makers, right? The, that someone had come back from the dead, and therefore they were God. They broke, he broke the laws of nature, you know, arguably demonstrated to Jesus that, uh, that he was transcendent to them. And they, they sold this miracle throughout Europe to the extent that, well, the whole European uh, continent became Christian and it was really run by the, the Pope at one, one point. So, and of course, you know, extended west to the Americas and so forth. Uh, however, the, 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 the Mughals ruled India for I think a thousand years or maybe longer a thousand years and the British ruled for 200 years and someone was making this example and, and the conversion rate is like minuscule I mean there, there's practically uh, it's very small the conversion rate I mean there were there are, there are a fair amount of Muslims in, uh, in India and of course, with the partition at the time of India's independence, India was partitioned into into, into Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. And as the Muslim population was sent to Pakistan, to Bangladesh, and to um, Pakistan. But these Islamic people—they weren't really a very 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 small percentage of them that populated eventually Bangladesh on the west and Pakistan on well, Bangladesh on the east and East, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Pakistan on the west were indigenous Indian people who were well a thousand years Muslims were there, they were invaders and they brought their own people and they populated and so on and so forth. The conversion rate from Hinduism to Islam is very, very small. And the conversion rate to Christianity is is, is very, very, very small. As well, so it's an interesting point in statistic as to the uh, kind of enduring nature of, of uh, uh, Sanatana Dharma, if you will. Um, um, I'm not sure how I got to that tangent, but we were saying that the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's tradition hmm, over um, Hundreds of years after his passing, there were a number of uh, lineages that were formed and so forth. But um, I'll probably connect that point, but, of course. But but um, the the 
the spiritual uh, vitality, if you will, of the tradition was uh, worn down. Krishna speaks about this in the Gita when he says, Evam parampara praptam imam rajasha vidu sakalena mahatanguvanashtaparantapa. That by the influence of time, sometimes the spiritual current that I set in motion, it requires some input. And so we make that happen by appearing himself or empowering a devotee and so on and so forth. So, um, at the time of Bhaktivinoda, at the turn of the century from into the, into the 20th century, this is, this is the time when the British were occupying India, and so India, ancient India, was in touch with modernity, modern, the modern world. I guess my point is that they were in touch with the modern world for 200 years, and the Orientalists, as they're now referred to, the original European scholars that came to, not really to study so much Indian uh, philosophy and theology, which was your basic, predominantly Vedanta, you have the Sankhya and Nyaya and Vaisheshika Yoga philosophy and, and various forms of Vedanta, but the Vedanta is most... Uh, prominent and um, they didn't really come to study it as much as they came to well to, to find out what was wrong with it you know because they had the one true religion that they had conquered Europe with right and all this is more just more paganism that was just going to roll over it was it was thought and of course they, they, they didn't and um, and uh, there was there was some acceptance of modern ideas, some resistance to modern ideas, and India is very different. It's very different. Buddhism is very different, and it's an outgrowth, of course, of, of, of Hinduism. And um, it's really a reaction to a to a to a, to a form of Hinduism that is more formal and religious than it is essential and spiritually experiential hmm? uh, rituals and so forth and, re- and religion karma mark a religion for material acquisition so the Buddha found that to be very shallow and empty hmm? and uh, pursued a more internal hmm, uh, and essential spiritual experience so at, at any rate it's Eastern thought hmm? India in particular Hinduism it's, there's nothing, it's very different from everything, it seems. It's really a world unto itself. And, and in my experience, when you, while there are various religious traditions, and they have within them produced uh, deep and people of, of deep experience, the more you look at the mystics in Islam, for example, in Sufism, or if you look at the mystics in Christianity that you find largely in Catholicism, early Catholicism, mm-hmm. um, you look at their lives, you, you look at a St. Francis, for example, and you, you find it's an Eastern version of Catholicism, in that it's vegetarian, there's ahimsa, is, is a strong emphasis. I mean, he, his, his spirituality, Francis of Assisi, was in question by the ruling papal uh, government, if you will. And um, they were out, you know, on crusades and so forth. So if you take Rumi, for example, Sufi mystic, it's the, the mystical side of Islam. And you, if you really look very carefully at, at Sufism, you find it's a combination of, combination of Islam and, and the Dvaita Vedanta. Mm-hmm. So the point I'm making is that, in my experience, is that while there are genuine spiritual traditions outside of Hinduism that have produced real deep spiritual experience, when you look at those experiences, you find they fit in pretty good with India. Mm-hmm. 
and, and the ideas of essential spirituality. We, you know, when we speak like this, we start to come to perennialism, which is, which is uh, I think, I don't know who coined the term, maybe Aldous Huxley or somebody uh, sometime back. It might have been somebody before him. Perennialism, maybe, maybe a, what was his name? Um, a Catholic from centuries past, I forget. But perennialism is the idea that there's this perennial Sanatana Dharma, really eternal spiritual reality that shows itself, that is always alive and shows itself in different forms over centuries. And so, spoken about in different ways, but it's speaking about the nature of the self, the nature of consciousness. Consciousness is different from matter, it's not an emergent property of the brain, and so on and so forth. Um, and you, and, you, and while it's spoken about in different voices and expressed and pursued with different practices, there's so much common ground that we can tie it all together. Now, what, what, what's been done in, in official perennialism, of course, is to tie it all together and the ground of being that it's all about is... Um, is Nirvishesh uh, Brahma, no qualities, no, no form. So all the forms relative to different cultures and so forth of expression in pursuit of this ultimate reality all disappear and it all becomes ground, ground zero, Nirvishesh, qualityless Brahman. That's their idea. Now, there, that said, there is a theistic, I would call that a, a monistic, the theistic form of perennialism as well. And we've written about it on The Harmonist, our online publication. Um, it's worth examining, and I've written about it in Aesthetic Vedanta also. The, the, I quoted a Russian philosopher, actually, who was an interesting um, find, who spoke about the idea that the, that the, that the an undifferentiated ground of being, to use... What's his name? Tillich. Mm-hmm. Paul Tillich. Catholic theologian's term. It's a good term. Ground of being for Brahman. Hmm? To use that as the common denominator that all religions kind of come to, if you will, if you, where you come to in any religious tradition if you really pursue it at its heart. He said to to call that to the, 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 the summation, the culmination of religion is incorrect. It's, it's more like the, 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 the basic common denominator. We all have that in common, but then from there, hmm, and as we would say, relative to the approach, to the, approach the nature of Brahman hmm, will be experienced either as without qualities, with qualities, without form, with form, with form as Narayan, as, as Krishna, in, in majestic love or intimate love, and, and so on and so forth. So he said the most perfect religion is not the, the lowest common denominator hmm, that all religious traditions deal with. Hmm. It was a good, good point. We make, we make the point readily. Hmm. You follow me? Hmm. So, at any rate, at the turn of the century, there was India and, uh, and, and Britain and with regard to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the great kind of founder of our lineage in a sense, Bhakti Vinod. We refer to it as the Bhakti Vinod Parivar, the family of Bhakti Vinod. Um, it uh, was interfacing with the modern world through that person of Bhakti Vinod. Indeed, Bhakti Vinod was educated by the British. I call him the first uh, convert, <laughs> uh, in, in, in a sense. And he became a great champion of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and, and, um, and so on. And, um, however, at the time that he was uh, doing that, the tradition itself had deteriorated in terms of being having a vital and alive 
spiritually experiential representation. And that's why he had heard of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but he it's not something he was he would, would would take seriously until he had a chance to look deeper and find I think he got acquaintance with Chaitanya Charitamrita. He was acquainted with the Bhagavatam, which was it's interesting because the British felt when they came across the Vaishnavism, which is obviously a theistic form of, of Vedanta, where there's grace is required, there's the personhood of the Godhead, and these things are similar to Christianity as opposed to monism. Most of the time, the reading in, in modern Christianity as to Hindu, what Hinduism is, is mon, a monistic reading. Hmm? So, you are Brahman, there's no God hmm, to worship. So the Christians um, almost militate against that, even I was reading some, a couple articles um, um, from, the, from the Catholic sector. They were, the subject was yoga phobia. And I guess the Pope had said something about, about yoga, and he had a phobia about it, and then there were various prominent uh, writers and thinkers of Catholicism supporting the idea that yoga was problematic if you wanted salvation as a Catholic. So, so one person was promoting, one person was... Uh, a couple articles to the contrary and uh, so forth. <laughs> so, yoga phobia, I thought that was a good good, good word. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, at any rate, Bhakti Vinod, he was, a, he, he was, uh, he, he, the same thing was happening. He, he, the, there was a Bhagavatam phobia, Bhagavad phobia. So the Christians came across in their studies of the, the varied nature of Hinduism, which naturally lends itself to be accommodating and inclusive and so forth. There are many things under the banner of Hinduism, even while they all have many, many things in common. Um, when they came across the Bhagavatam, they found this is the closest thing to the real religion. But when you get to the 10th canto and it's Krishna dancing with the gopis, it all goes really to hell fast. That's what they thought. Um, and so there was a real um, Victorian moral sensibility that um, was kind of pushed on the Hindus to purge them of their their licentious and immoral kind of uh, religious uh, background, and they were, they were a little susceptible to that because Hinduism is are actually a very moral, moral group. Um, but uh, the Victorian sensibilities were like probably arising out of some type of um, psychological repression and, and so forth. The Indians were not; they are now. Thank the British for that. <laughs> They're pretty repressed. Um, I mean, to see what happens, but. Anyway, um, it was Bhagavad phobia, and Dr. Vinod himself confesses to having caught the Bhagavad phobia. And he had an inherent, inborn prejudice against and dislike for the Bhagavatam, I guess, to the point where, you know, that's not something you get into, that's not something you read. But when he came across Chaitanya Charitamrita and the pristine moral character of Sri Chaitanya as a, as a sannyasin, and uh, and the, the beautiful explanations of how his capacity externally to exhibit the, in, the, not the inhuman, but the superhuman characteristics of transcending as a young, young man, 25, transcending, rising above the passions of the world entirely, and of course, entering into ecstasy and trance and so forth as he was, did so so readily um, so otherworldly um, while in this world and then all of this the morality and beyond hmm? really the, 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 the ability 
to be morally stout rests largely in actual spiritual experience, which you're saying you might not have too much of. (laughs) That's not good. Uh, Because based on that experience, you know there's something more substantial than the world and the morality. I've, I've often compared moralities like to be put in a cage. So if you want to take a wild animal, you want to tame them and put them in a cage. So humans come from just animality to humanity and a moral culture, structure, rules and so forth. Rules are meant to hone you in and if there's love, well, there's no need for rules. Hmm? If there's rules, well, there's not much love. Where there's love, there's no rules. Where there's rules, there's no love. Hmm? So the rules are there, but they're not the end. They are meant to tame us, and then if you get tamed, you come out of the cage. You're out of the cage before, but you're a problem. Right? Now you're in the cage, you get tamed, you come out of the cage, and you're not a problem. Hmm? Is the idea. So there's a way to be in the world, but not of the world. Um, and and it ultimately, that ability ultimately rests on one's capacity to have internal experience, to universalize the deity. We have the deity in the temple. And I was saying the other night, people ask, what's the need of the temple? Why spend money on the temple? God doesn't need a temple. No, you need a temple. God doesn't need a temple. You need a temple. Something, something towering up said, God's over here. You know, he's here. So at least you're going to come there. Because you could say, well, God's everywhere. Why do I need a temple? Because you don't see him everywhere. And how do we know that? Because you don't act like that in front of God. <laughs> Watchful eye of God. So you need a God as a temple. And here is a means by which you can get experience. And then eventually you can begin to see God everywhere and have inner experience and, and so forth and, and, uh, and so on. So, when Bhaktivinoda read Chaitanya Charitamrita and studied the person and character of Chaitanya who was absorbed in the Bhagavad Leelas, the Leelas of Radha and Krishna and so forth, then he could understand all oh, these Leelas in light of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and rather than through the Orientalists' British uh, attempts to not really so much study, as I said earlier, Indian religion as much as to dissect it and expose it and, dis- and dispose of it mm-hmm. and replace it with Christianity, which where they were not successful in doing, and they've been successful, you know, all around the world, you know, to, 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 a, to a large extent, but not, it's very limited, <laughs> uh, their success in, in India, as you know. So, so Bhaktivinoda then became a card-carrying member of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and he used his modern sensibilities from his education and exposure to the West to try to bring Gaudiya Vaishnavism into interface with modernity and show its, its wealth, its richness, its depth, and, and so forth, with his outreaches to, he wrote to Thoreau and Emerson, I believe, and others in the West, they're sometimes referred to as the first American Transcendentalist. So he was trying to, to do that, and, and and this this is what we're all you know we're all here because of this. You know, this is the, the the very extraordinary contribution of Bhakti Vinod, theologizing about the tradition and so forth, and making certain strategies for promoting it in the West in consideration of Western sensibilities, and mentality, philosophical sensibilities, and so forth. So this is the work of a very powerful um, spiritual person. So, at the time, um, as I'm explaining, the face of Gaudiya Vaishnavism was questionable. It was said that if a Gaudiya was amongst pious Hindus, there would be, in educated Hindus, there would be a place for a religious sadhu coming to your door with a begging bowl. So you would give something. You would give something and you might entertain some discussion with them, hear their ideas and so forth. But they said if a godia came to the door, that's a a godia, give him some fruit and send him away. Nothing nothing to say. 
Gaudiya's people would join Gaudiya Vaishnavism because there was some question about their caste in the, in the Varnashram religious system. Hmm? Then the society is divided according to the karma and the psychological makeup and so forth and the different divisions of labor and duties and responsibilities and so forth. And, and some, somehow your caste was in question by some type of orthodox religious, socio-religious sensibilities. Um, then you would, or you were an outcast, you would go and ch- go, join the Chaitanya Sampradaya. And then that's above caste and you'd think I've risen above caste. And, but they didn't act like they had risen above caste, which is, which is all about moral sensibilities. So there's a fair amount of immorality in the name of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which you know has this ideal, the parakya love of Radha and Krishna, and it doesn't play out in terms of having many lovers in this world as part of your sadhana or something like that. You know? So these kind of things were going on, and so over time, some misrepresentation, lack of really luminaries in the tradition, and it had reached a state where in, as I mentioned earlier, Krishna speaks in the Bhagavad Gita, a need for reinvesting some power in the tradition, and that's what Bhagavad Gita knows about. And he did that in a big way. And so, this is a long explanation, but uh, uh, useful, I hope. Uh, the imitationism that Sridhar Marsh talks to largely refers to persons who were formally Gaudiya Vaishnavas. They weren't really acquainted with the essence of the tradition or in any depth of the philosophy. And they were in a lineage and uh, they would give initiation and charge some money or something like that. And, um, and they were in form Gaudiya Vaishnavas, but not in essence and they were kind of imitating. And sometimes they would imitate being an ecstatic or something like that. And um, common people, without education and without good association, you know, they don't know don't much the difference. And, and people deceive themselves in religious traditions also to think that they're more than what they are. And, and the high, high, high ideals and the way in which that expresses itself that are talked about in literature amongst the saints, the associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. These were being, this was being imitated. You, you had people, for example, would go, like Haridas Thakur, who was known for chanting three lakhs of names a day, which took about 22 hours. They would go and sit and chant and so forth, but then they would, they would, ha- they would have moral Lapses. The famous story of Haryas Thakur is that Maya herself, personified, came in the form of a prostitute to test his chanting. It's recorded in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Asked him to please have union with her and satisfy her as a young maiden. And he said, well, you know, I've got to finish my rounds. Sit here and listen to me chant when I finish my rounds. Certainly I'll... I'll satisfy you. So he chanted so long she fell asleep and by the time she woke up he was chanting his rounds for the next day. And he said, I finished my rounds. <laughs> After a couple of days she converted and she became a sadhu. He gave her Tulsi and Japa and she went and she became followed his example like this. That's maybe my wife or something like that. So so but the imitationists, they could imitate and form Haridas, but they couldn't really connect in the same way substantially. <coughs> so this kind of imitation going on, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsakakuri coined it, we'll use the phrase sahajiya, which means uh, natural, it also, but it means cheap also. Hmm? So to cheaply think that I've attained more than I have, and imitate, get some followers, so that's what he's talking about in terms of imitationists. Hmm? Imitationists, that we should, we should avoid that. We should be grounded, down-to-earth persons, have a real guru and practice, uh, and know our adhikar, know our eligibility. 
the whole tradition is there, but there are different levels of eligibility by which we become qualified to apply ourselves in different practices, whether it be worshiping a deity, chanting, um, teaching, uh, as, as may be the case, um, internal meditation, and so forth. So it's all relative to one's eligibility. Um, so Bhakti Vinod emphasized this and sought to re- be a reformer of the tradition and so on. And so the imitationists, this is what he's talking about, and, and also in a broader sense, he's talking about, again, the idea of, of being, becoming trapped in identifying with the form at the cost of losing sight of the essence. And so, for example, let's say you form an institution for spreading and uh, providing a nourishing environment, spreading to others and providing a nourishing environment to them to practice and so forth. And uh, and, and then you you, um, invest a lot of time and energy in the institution and develop it and then you pass on and then persons who succeed you, they they develop kind of institutional consciousness, society consciousness, rather than God consciousness. And it's, got, it's tricky because it's got all the trappings of a spiritual society. But still, you can be in society consciousness and be in the dress of God consciousness and then not be able to make dynamic spiritual determinations and become a form worshiper, if you will. And blind, blind following of the rituals and so forth, without understanding the essential meaning behind them. Without you know, it's like you take Bhakti you know, as a reformer. Any reformer um, is up against the fact that he or she has to speak outside of the box about the tradition, and people are inside the box, and they've gotten something from being inside the box, and they know that. So they figure, you need to stay in the box and everything will come, you know. Um, there's some truth to that, but I'll give you another example that Prabhupada gave once. He said that I have planted a tree and I put a fence around the tree. That's the box. And I said, keep this, you know, put this the seed of bhakti inside the box, the institution. Stay in the institution. Stay in the institution. Stay in the institution. Hmm? But in the example he gave, you plant the tree and you put a fence around it so the deers won't come and eat the tree and the cows and so on and so forth and protect it. But as it becomes strong hmm, and its roots go down, its branches go up and out and they overflow the the the, the fence naturally and they go high enough that it's, it's not a problem. Hmm? So if you don't ever grow up and see the institution as an instrument that's relative, that has its purposes, its function, its, and so forth, and you just say, you know, Krishna consciousness means just to be in this institution, and it could, but you could be missing what the institution's for and battling against real essential spiritual ideas that somebody may be in a reformist type of way, out-of-the-box thinking, may be talking about. And we've seen this happen historically, right? So this is another broader sense in which Yudhamarja is talking about imitation where you fall into if the formality, formal um, membership, but not spiritually essential Membership, mm-hmm. and, and then you, and, and and that becomes very formal, becomes very rule oriented again. You can't go here. You can't do this. Yeah, it doesn't. If you really look carefully, it, it does not correspond with the spirit with which you joined to begin with, which is very open, ready for anything, and uh, and so forth. Then we give you some rules to help get a handle on it, and so forth. And they're supposed to take you within so you understand the purpose behind them and then you can understand what's a detail and what's a principle. Another way to talk about it is 
in this broader sense of imitationism, people identify with the details, which are time and place and circumstance calls that some sadhu, some saint may put in place hmm, that may be useful at the time, but in different times, circumstances, they don't serve the same purpose, so they should be dispensed with. Hmm? So to be able to separate the difference between what's essential, spiritually essential, and what is a detail meant to foster that, that does so in its own time, but has its own time, at which it may longer, no longer be useful, and to, to insist on the, those particular details may be even counterproductive. So a saint in the succession hmm, will be able to speak out of the box and be able to distinguish between essentials, formal and essence, essentials and indeed principles and details. And then those who have identified too much with the details of time and place, they can't identify with someone who's actually emphasizing the principle. And they think, this guy's heterodox. Get rid of her. You know, um, the heretic. Let's take, well, I'll give you just one example. Prabhupada asked his disciples to chant 16 rounds of Ajapa. Hmm? So that's a, that's a detail. Hmm? But some people take it as a principle. So if I say, chant 32 rounds, what's this? This is, uh, you know, he, he's something like this. Originally, Prabhupada asked the disciples to chant 64 rounds a day. They couldn't do that. So they said, well, then 32. They couldn't do that. Then 16. And they kind of could do that pretty good. I said, okay, well, you know, we stick with that. But then people think, if you chant 16, this formula, if you chant one more or one less, you know, by midnight, you turn into a pumpkin. (laughs) 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 So they get a, you know, and it's a good policy and so forth to have a fixed number of rounds. But different charges, different gurus may determine different policies with with regard to the... uh, how the students may, will apply themselves in the practice. And even within one institution, we may decide one thing for one, one for another. And that's really the work of the Acharya, to find an essential, you know, this works. And it works because it's, it's, I tell one to chant one round and one to chant, you know, 108 rounds, but it's working for both, would be the idea. It's enough that he or she feels pushed and 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 uh, makes progress doing it. That, that's all we're interested in. They make progress from where they are. So Narada Muni, the classic example that I like to cite is Narada Muni. He met the hunter, and the hunter was half-killing animals. And then he took pleasure in watching them die. And Narada said, okay, what I'd like you to do is chant the name of Ram and kill him completely. Hmm? Can you do that? Can you kill him completely instead of just halfway? And so I, he acquiesced, and, and of course, then he, he became a sadhu, the hunter, eventually. So, so this is imitationism, as Sri Ramarsh is talking about. That's different than what you're talking about. That you connected it with, with the idea of, that you're practicing, but you don't have much experience and therefore you should just go on anyway. Hmm? And you use the phrase, fake it till you make it, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, that said, um, the nature of sadhana bhakti, so there's three types, three phases, if you will, or stages of bhakti. Sadhana bhakti means bhakti in practice. There's bhava bhakti, bhakti in ecstasy, and prem bhakti, which is the final goal, um, where the ecstasy has been honed and, and, and Bob has been turned into praying, into love of God. So, basically speaking, and I've lectured on this uh, at times previously, um, sadhana bhakti is an imitation, but there is an English phrase that imitation of a good thing is a good thing. So, it's going through the motions. In other words, in, sadhana, in, in, in bhakti, bhakti has is anushilanam. The verbal root shila, hmm? in anushilanam. Hmm? Shilanam here means like a culture. Anu means like following in an ongoing culture. Krishna anushilanam of Krishna. 
of, of anukul, acts that are favorable, pleasing to Krishna, an ongoing culture of this. And the root verbal root, Sanskrit root, to the word shilam, shil, it has two sides to it. One would be a, a emotive component and an active component. Hmm? So this culture, hmm, if you will, is both internal, contemplative, contemplative, experiential, um, spiritually emotive, and active with the senses. Hmm? We do things and so forth. In sadhana bhakti, this active component where bhakti comes onto the senses and with our tongue, with our ears, we hear and chant. We engage our tongue in bhakti or bhakti engages our tongue. Bhakti engages our ears, for example. So this is bhakti comes on the senses and at the same time, the emotive component Bhakti and ecstasy, the emotional inner experience that you're talking about, that has not that develops in the second phase in bhava bhakti, which is the, the perfection of the practice, and then the bhava is cultivated, and there are also actions in bhava bhakti, but those actions like raising the hands or chanting and so forth, as I'm speaking. They are all coming out of ecstasy. Whereas in sadhana bhakti, they're being done to attain ecstasy. Hmm? To attain bhava. And when you attain bhava, then there are the same actions, often, but the motivating force, or driving force behind them, is the, the ecstasy and spiritual emotion that's attained, so it's driving it. Hmm? But again, imitation of a good thing is a good thing. Now we're using imitation word, but in a positive context. So we see someone who follows and serves out of ecstasy, and that's why we become attracted, because they are speak about it, they exemplify it, and we're drawn in, and we, we want to do that. Hmm? And so, so we think, I'll dress like that. Hmm? I'll do those things. And that's all it's about. Hmm? It's more than that. And doing, but doing those things will bring about that more. Hmm? And so with the motive to attain that kind of invisible, internal um, side of bhakti, we take up sadhana bhakti in practice. And so it's to be understood from the start that, um, that you're in sadhana, if you understand it properly, you're doing sadhana bhakti now, you're not in bhava bhakti. That said, hmm, when we do the sadhana bhakti, there will be times when we do get some experience. It may be uh, limited, but it's very powerful when it comes. So it's very confirming, like, well, that's what they're talking about in the book. I like that. That's very confirming, if you, if you will. So the, and, and, this is, and what this is about is the more that our mind and our senses, the bodies constituted of, are engaged. We try to create an environment here for constant, ongoing engagement. And then hearing about it, explaining it, and chanting, and then practical service, and so forth. And then you get some absorption at times, right? And you feel, this is, yes, this, this is like otherworldly. Hmm? And uh, very powerful. Hmm? And in time, as we go through the stages, what's happening in the beginning stages largely is the culture, the practice, is getting rid of things that are getting in the way. Obstacles, if it's properly performed, different desires are being retired, seen for what they are, the futility of them. And we're driven by the philosophy, the teaching. We identify with the teaching. It makes sense, so our reasoning is... Engaged. This is reasonable. This is the rationally the best use of my time, hmm? and so with that kind of commitment, which we fortify through these kind of discussions, we fortify that rational intellectual commitment. Hmm? 
to do what? To serve. That serving is what it's about. Serving, and the, the more you get that, the more you think serving is what it's about. It's not about ecstasy, actually. It's about serving. The more you enter into that serving, then the ecstasy shows up as a byproduct. Hmm? First you want ecstasy, and you think, maybe I'll take some ecstasy on the side. <laughs> That's not good. That should not be done. That would make, put a hole in the bucket that you're trying to pour water in. That's not good. Don't do that. Hmm? Uh, so with some intellectual fortitude and, and, and the fortitude that comes from camaraderie and uh, with other peers and with advanced devotees um, just like we just had a three four day festival many devotees here and so forth very powerful uh, and so on and we sit with our guru and we we, we and discuss, we get confidence, and so, and so we go forward with the practice. This is, this is well-reasoned, and this is sadhana bhakti, and there will be some experience from time to time, isn't it? And this is very confirming. And so, gradually, then as the heart becomes cleansed, chetodharpanamarjanam, of unwanted things, and so forth, obstacles, then the ability to practice and stay engaged and can, fix, can focus the mind and so forth is enhanced considerably. Hmm? And when that's there, then taste will come and taste will start to become consistent. Hmm? This is called ruchi. And from taste comes attachment. Taste for bhakti comes attachment to the object of bhakti. That's called asakti and that's the last stage of sadhana bhakti. And in these higher stages, in nishta, when the practice is steady, hmm? you know, you say, well, well, geez, I'm not getting much experience, but you know, you, you've got a hole in the bucket here, you know. So it's a problem. Hmm? The well is pumping, but you know, there's a break in the line. Something your practice isn't steady, and so you sometimes you're engaging your senses in Krishna's service, and after you're doing other things, hmm? and so now you're making it harder for yourself to do what you wanted to do, and, and there's this battle going on. In early stages, and the, the solution of that battle is good association consistently, consistent, consistent, good association it gives us strength, corners us philosophically, rationally, makes it difficult for us to, to act on our previous samskars, material tendencies, and so forth. And then we commit ourselves and we get some experience, and we're retired. Then, as I say, initially, when the steady service is, is steady, the mind is focused, and then there is starts to be consistent experience. Then you enter into ruchi, two stages of ruchi, where you get taste whenever the kirtan is done nicely. And then the later stage, whether it's done off-key and, and, and Haridas is singing or whatever. <laughs> There's a taste. Uh, so forth. Then it develops into attachment for Krishna. Taste will be particular. Taste like that it has, uh, uh, it's the budding beginning of a, of a particular type of love of Krishna, like friendly love of Krishna, or romantic love of Krishna. In Asakti, the object, that form of Krishna that corresponds with that kind of taste, comes into view. And then one graduates from sadhana bhakti, enters into bhava bhakti, and the bhava bhakti is cultured turns into brain. So, it's kind of a given that in Sadhana Bhakti that the emotive component, the, the ecstasy that we hear about in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's associates or that we see in great lives of great devotees that we know must be there for them to have done all that they've done. Prabhupada wasn't like falling on the ground in ecstasy and, and, uh, and so on and so forth, but we understand he's containing all that and he had to have deep inner experience to have done extraordinary um, service that he did. Hmm? So we see these types of things and, and we become inspired, we attach ourselves to those persons and and it's good, I mean it's good, it's nice. Nice group of people who identify with all those things <coughs> and look at one another and say, I'm in for the long run and he is too and she is too and you get this bond with them. Hmm? that transcends the differences that we have that otherwise would never find us in the same room having a conversation with one another, perhaps, hmm? on a much deeper 
level we look and go, he's still here, mm-hmm. she's still there. We went through all these things together. Mm-hmm. We had our trials and tribulations, we struggled, and then you get strength and you think, these people are real. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some camaraderie with them. Then you stop thinking about, when will I become ecstatic all the time? You think, these are good people to be with, and my deities are beautiful. And, and, and I, I know one fellow once was serving the deities, the sannyasi, in a particular institution, an ashram. And uh, developing it, and one of the devotees said to Swamiji, that are these deities... Radha and Krishna also there in Goloka Vrindavan. He said, if they're not, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually we see, what is, what is Adharya? What is Madhavan, our ashram in Central America? What is Saragrahi, our ashram in Nashville? What is Adharya? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Are they a means to an end, or are they the means and the ends? Hmm? And this is how Krishna does it here. This place, this kind of thing. So, it takes a maturity and thought, and good association, and, and uh, constant kind of. Krishna says it in the Gita. I mean, Arjuna asks the question. The mind seems very difficult to control. It's like trying to catch the wind. Krishna says, "Abhyasa na dukonte abhiragi na By practice and detachment, it's possible. So, by foregoing which is not favorable in practicing a good environment. It's just like, you know, it's not expected that you go to school to become a physicist and and, you, and you, you're not going to go through, you know, a stage where you're, like, not a physicist. <laughs> you don't know anything and you're trying to learn it. And, and of course, that's all just a learning intellectual affair. But um, that holds true here, too. There's a lot of things to learn the more we learn the teaching in, in a practical way and so forth, then the better able, the more equipped we are to practice what we're doing also. So sometimes we're not very well acquainted with what it is we're doing. We like it. We're drawn in. Our guru has attracted us and so forth and, and other devotees. So we're doing it, but we don't understand it that well. So we try to explain it. And as our theoretical understanding improves, this captures our intellect. Hmm? And then when our intellect is captured by the philosophy, it no longer becomes an assistant to the mind and the senses that want to go elsewhere. Hmm? When the mind is co-opted by the senses, excuse me, when the intellect is, is co-opted, or, is that the right word? By the mind and the senses to work for their drives, then you are a very dangerous animal. Because hmm? animals don't have that kind of intellect to pursue their sensual needs. So you become a big beast. Intellect is meant to separate us from our animality. Therefore, it said, "Well, humans are different from animals because they have intelligence, greater intelligence." But we have to show that in some practical way. <laughs> is intelligence just becoming doing what animals do in a bigger way? So, as I say, the birds can fly high in the sky, and the animal, the fish can go deep in the ocean. So, if we figure out ways to go with our intelligence to fly high in the sky and go to the bottom of the ocean, is it really is it really saying we're different? <laughs> you have intelligence; you're figuring out how to do what, what they're doing without intelligence. So, I mean, it doesn't really doesn't seem like a very good use of the intellect. So, intellect is meant to separate us from our animality and distinguish humanity from animality. The way in which that, I believe, we teach can be done is, is to take humanity as a junction between animality and spirituality with the proper application of our intellect and reason in pursuit of that which is beyond reason, which is our very self and love that, and a love that knows no reason. That proper use of, of intellect is what makes us human and gives us, enables us to take fully advantage of what the human life is as a junction, as a, as a stepping off point to transcendence into spirituality. So, learning to be done, and some, when the intellect can be captured, then, then 
is what Nishta is about. And the intellect is really captured there. So really, and, and it's captured by this philosophy rather than by the mind and the senses. Mm-hmm. And so then it militates against or it rules over the mind and the senses. Mm-hmm. And in Nishta, ideas, seeds of ideas, may be there, but they don't have the chance to fructify. Mm-hmm. They show up and they pass out, come with it, pass through. They're not entertained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> entertained. That's not, I could do that, maybe. Yeah. Uh, or they just they just capture you and there you are and you don't even know it and then you, oh I was over there I have something to do for Krishna here mm-hmm. yeah. see this is this is so when, you, when, when that's happening with your mind you can understand you're not at the stage of nishta yet so, regularly hearing the Bhagavatam and serving the person who personifies the Bhagavatam. All that is abhadra, inauspicious, will pretty much be, come out of the heart. By the, this is the practice, it will come out. Nityam Bhagavad-seva. So, Nityam Bhagavad-seva means to Nitya, eternally, regularly, consistently, on a regular basis, hear the Bhagavad. It means hearing from someone who understands the Bhagavad philosophy, is what we're discussing now. And this Bhagavad itself, Srimad Bhagavatam, is a commentary on the sutras of Vyas, the natural commentary, which is the logic of all the Upanishads. So, it is meant to capture. The intellect. It, it, in the same time, the Bhagavatam gives a good bashing to the intellect in terms of its thinking that it's that it's more than what it is. Hmm? It can be useful, but it's it's not the ultimate arbitrator, the decider, and the, the means for arriving at perfect knowing. Hmm? So it, it it gives a good bashing to the intellect, and then then utilizes the intellect. The head is used, we often say, to soften the heart. So this is sadhana bhakti, and uh, I wouldn't quite call it fake it until you make it, <laughs> but I would say understand it, practice it, <laughs> understand it theoretically. There are some, there are some senior sannyas, disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, Prabhupada's guru, who came to him after ten years of practicing, and I'll close with this short story. Mm-hmm. And when they came to see their Guru Marsh, you could understand there was something on their mind. He said, What's on your mind? You have some question. And they were a little shy to present it. He said, Come on, how with it? They said, Guru Marsh, we've been practicing for 10 years. And many high things you talk about. Mm-hmm. But after 10 years, our experience is that these high things are not coming within us. And Bhakti Sat said, Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> if you had said after ten years all these high things are coming in us, I would have thought, oh, problem. They don't. They think they're getting their imitationist. They think they're getting the high. Thing. They don't know how high these things are. Hmm. So he was relieved, uh, and so if you understand how high it is, what an ideal this is. It makes liberation look small, which people are bathing in the Ganges in the Himalayas up to their neck this time of the year. It's real cold there and the water is real cold. And they're doing that because they're convinced I'm not this body. That's the theory. And therefore I'm going to put myself in these very extreme physical conditions and transcend the mental dualities of hot and cold, good and bad, happy and sad. Hmm? And in the summer, they're surrounding themselves by fire on all sides at noon. And, I mean, traditionally, and for thousands and thousands of years, you have people that are very, practicing very extreme um, disciplines and so forth, because they're convinced Anathas body and mukti, liberation, is a goal. 
Now our goal is 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 beyond mukti, if you will. It's praying, and it's easy comparatively, but it's very high. Hmm? We should be happy that it's easy practices and good company. Was it, is it was it hard to participate in the festival, even if you were working full time? <laughs> to put it on, as some of you were, and I appreciate that. Oh, that's very nice. Is it hard to sit here and discuss these things? Hmm? Not really. It's very easy things. It may be hard for your mind, but that's that doesn't mean they're hard things to do. I mean, bathing in the river all night long, I mean, that's hard to do <laughs> in the winter. It's not hard comparatively to chant Hare Krishna. Hmm? It's very easy comparatively. It may be hard for me to do because of where my mind is, but then this is the solution to that. Following your mind, how hard will that be? You'll find out if you keep following it. <laughs> you know, and when you're young, it seems it's okay, just follow it. You know, well, all of a sudden, you know, you start to get 35, 38, 39, 40, and you realize this is my life. This is it. This is what I do. I pay the bills, you know. And, you know, it's not as exciting as I live in a monastery, you know, and I'm pursuing enlightenment there. It was, wow, that's pretty cool. You did something with your life. <laughs> you know, when you're young and very impressionable, you may think, you know, there are other things to do out there. You know? yeah. Youth goes away pretty quick. And then, you know, even if you're at the top of your class and at the top of your field and you've got enough raja guna, you need to be, like, motivated for material success and progress and you become... Bill Gates, you know, and multimillionaire, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, that's that, that's easier hmm, to live with all that kind of money and power, influence, and so on and so forth. And there's some sense of accomplishment there, no doubt, but hmm, doesn't endure, does it? Hmm? You can't take it with you. So, but if, long, if, you're, if your intelligence and your psychic, psychology is influenced by Rajapan, then you don't think that far. That's not, you know, that's not dominating your, 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 your life. And so this sense of material progress, accomplishment, and you're preoccupied with it to be a politician, change the nation, so forth and so on. But, and those people have as many, you know, problems marital problems, their children become, sometimes, do things they didn't want them to do, cause them mental struggles. So most of us, you know, we're not going to be big, great, accomplished people in the world. So it may look inviting, but it's, it's, most most people are just, okay, day to day. You're going to think, well, I was here in the monastery for a couple of years, I'll go out and try it again, you know. I already did that once, you know. Of course, then there's a possibility for family life and Krishna consciousness and so forth, but that also is different than ordinary ordinary family life. So we should stay focused on the ideal and not wait for the whole world to join us because they're not going to join us. It's not going to, truth is not going to be popular in the world based on falsity. Therefore, one devotee is very precious. Any questions? Does that help? Yeah. What's the time? 7.50. Oh, and it's a little bit over over time. A little bit of spontaneity. Mm.